Well, some of you know that my parents live in Florida. And so over the years, our kids have had quite a few opportunities uh, to visit and to see the Atlantic Ocean. Now, for any of you who have actually been to the ocean before, I think one of the things that is impossible to miss is just how big and powerful the waves can be. And remember, especially when our kids were little, uh, before spending a day at the beach, I would almost always make sure to have a little bit of a huddle time with the kids, and I would talk with them either on the beach or before we got there, before we got out of the car, about how this is not Lake Marion, (laughs) and that the ocean is big, it's powerful, and that it can be dangerous. And I would lay down, or we would, Carrie and I, lay down some ground rules about what they should and could do and what they shouldn't do. And you know, with kids, sometimes they're listening and uh, sometimes they're not. It happens with husbands too, I know. Um, But on one occasion, I think Elias, my son, was about seven years old. And, you know, honestly, truthfully, he actually was listening to our directions and he was doing what he was supposed to do and not doing what he wasn't supposed to do. And so he was standing, I still remember, standing in the water, maybe about shin deep, which was okay. The ocean was to his back and the beach was to his front. He was, I think, talking with one of his brothers or sisters. When all of a sudden, with his back to the ocean, a huge wave came out of nowhere And it just swallowed him up. I can still remember uh, just watching this and knocked him to the ground. And in a moment, he went from being, you know, pretty dry to being underwater and on the beach, on the ground. And for him in that moment, you know what it was? It was a reality check. You know, you you can listen to dad talk all you want about how big and powerful the ocean is. But when you experience it, when you get knocked down by it, when you see it and experience it, it's a whole different animal. And at least for the rest of that day, uh, his attitude and his actions when it came to the ocean, I could see it was different. We are in this series we're calling Awe. And what it is, is it's a three-week deep dive into what is the fear of God? What does it look like? What effect does it have on us? And last week, we got started by understanding that there is a lot to this word fear. And that, in fact, around 365 times in the Bible, there is this simple command in one way or another, in one form or another. It's the command, do not fear. 365 times, God wants you, his people, to know that you don't need to be afraid, that you do not need to be scared as you go through life, that you do not need to be worried. Well, at the same time, approximately 200 times, and so a pretty major theme in the Bible actually tells us to fear. Because around 200 times, the Bible tells us to fear God. And so you have these passages in the Bible, like in Psalm 46, that say, we will not fear, though the earth would actually give way or the mountains, just think about this, the mountains would all fall into the heart of the sea. 
Though there's terror and unrest in the Middle East, I'm adding that in, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging, we do not need to fear. There's a confidence we can have. Well, at the very same time, Solomon writes in more than one place that we should fear and that in fact some fear is good. That the fear of the Lord is the beginning of being a wise person, the beginning of wisdom. So what is this fear of the Lord that we are supposed to have? As was brought out last week, uh, I'll put it this way, it's, it's like a a multifaceted diamond. It's really hard in just a few words to grasp and to get our minds around it. But here's the working definition that we have for fear in this series. It's to fear God is to be so aware of his presence that it profoundly changes the way you think, the way you feel, and the way you act. There is a fear aspect to the fear of God. It's like if you've ever had a chainsaw in your hands. It can hurt you. It's powerful. You should rightly fear a chainsaw in your hands. But it's, it's more than just being afraid. It's not a terror of God. Words like awe, or respect, or honor are good words to help us understand this multifaceted diamond when it comes to the fear of God. And so last week, what we learned was that fear of God will affect the way you feel. Or to put it this way, as was said last week, that a proper fear of God will drive out all unhealthy fears. That that the Almighty God is on your side? What, What do we have to be afraid of? The creator of the entire world on your side. What is it that we truly have to fear? A little a little war going on? Not so little, but Do we truly have to fear that, be afraid of that? Eh, Concern is good. But God is on our side. Now, let's go back to Elias on the ocean. Sometimes when you actually experience something powerful, it will actually affect also not just how you feel, but the way you act and the way you live. And so today, that's what we want to talk about specifically. It's our first fill-in for today. Is that a proper fear of God, last week, will affect how we feel. Today, it will affect the way you live. Do you know that one of the most clarifying questions, one of the most important questions that you could ask about your life is this question. Who do you live for? Like, seriously, why do you get up in the morning? Some of you have wondered that question at times. <laughs> why do you get up in the morning? What is the purpose of your life? 
as someone who's now in middle age and came to North Cross when I was relatively young, I'm beginning to see just how quickly life goes by. And you are not human if you don't ask yourself the question, why am I here? What is the purpose? Why do I get up every morning? And for most people, the most obvious question about who do you live for, or the most obvious answer is me. That's our natural default. And I'm going to put under me, also, I'll include in that our immediate family and our children. Yes, I know that's not exactly you, but in a real way, it kind of is us because it's our family. That is the natural reaction that people have. That's a natural way even probably that you think, that I think, of of how we would live. It would be for me and the immediate family around me. Today, God's not going to send a wave in your direction to swallow you up and throw you onto the ground. I don't think. But he does want to grab your attention. And he wants us to wake up and to recognize that there's a different way to live. Now, to do that, um, we're going to turn to an event that happened in the Old Testament. In fact, we're going to kind of connect with the story of uh, Moses and the Israelites. Now, for those of you who are new to the Bible, maybe you kind of recognize the name Moses. Uh, He was a a man who lived about 1,300 years before Christ. He's the one that God used to, maybe you remember this, lead the Israelites out of Egypt, and there was that whole Red Sea that split open. Um, Moses is the one who was given the Ten Commandments on top of Mount Sinai. That's, that's who Moses is. The Israelites, um, they were the descendants of a man named Abraham, but maybe more importantly for you, it's the, the family from which someday Jesus would come. So at the time of our lesson, we're going to be turning to Exodus 19. In fact, if you have your Bibles, you can start turning there already. But at the time of our lesson, what's been going on is that it's been about two months since God freed the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. He sent the 10, God did sent the 10 plagues. Then he, as I mentioned, opened the Red Sea and they walked through on dry ground And so for two months, they've been freed from slavery. They're heading to the promised land, but they're spending some time in the wilderness. It ends up becoming 40 years in the wilderness, but at this point, they didn't know that. How would you feel if you had just been freed from slavery? Thankful, happy. It's interesting. Um, The Israelites, for these two months that they've been freed, they've spent most of their time doing this, complaining. They were complaining about the food and complaining about the water and complaining about the wilderness and their living conditions. In fact, in Exodus chapter 18, we see a very tired and exhausted Moses because he has spent an entire few days just listening to complaints and settling disputes. And then in Exodus chapter 20, there's a very famous account that happened there is 
where God gave Moses, for the very first time, the written down law of God. You know it as the the Ten Commandments, but gave him the direction of how God's people should live as they live for him. Sandwiched between their complaining and their need to follow God and what those rules are is Exodus chapter 19 a very influential and important chapter when it comes to understanding who God is and why we would even care about these directions that he gives to us. So typically we don't do this. Uh, typically we, we just read through a chapter very slowly and you know, we'll stop. But today I want to read all of the verses kind of quickly. I'll, I'll pause a little bit along the way, but Exodus chapter 19, beginning with verse 3. So, Moses has led the Israelites out of Egypt to the wilderness and to the base of a mountain called Mount Sinai. So then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob. And what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. And he reminds them of his love. How I carried you figuratively on eagle's wings. And brought you to myself. I freed you. Verse 5. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. This would be the family, like I mentioned before, from which the Savior would come and and God would have a, a special relationship with Abraham's family, the Israelites. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we'll do everything the Lord said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, then go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day because the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Now, let's pause there for a moment. I know that seems really weird. Like, God's coming, wash your clothes. This was an Old Testament way of recognizing that whether it was going to the temple or in this case, a a very special presence of God, that there is a being ready that needs to happen, that there's an acknowledgement that that we have sin. Um, We don't uh, wash our clothes uh, to come to church. Hopefully you wash your clothes when you you come into church. We don't have to wash our clothes to go to church, but maybe a good, I guess, connector to this is what we did at the beginning of the service today. We we recognized our sin, our dirt, and our need for Jesus and forgiveness and to be washed clean as we come into the presence of God. This was an Old Testament way of doing that. It said, put limits for the people around the mountain 
and tell them, be careful that you don't approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. So God is, is he, he's making it really clear. Again, like, I love you. I, I brought you here on eagle's wings. But there is a difference between me and you. And if you get too close to a holy God, so to speak, it's not good for you and me, for sinful people. There's a difference there. There's a gap. No person or animal will be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them. They washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. Keep your, your minds and hearts focused on God. Verse 16. And on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast that no person or army blew. It was coming from heaven itself. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of that mountain. Verse 18. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain was shaking. It trembled violently as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. Now, all week I've been trying to visualize and think about what it would be like to be there. Unnerving. I've talked to a few people who've lived through or have experienced minor earthquakes. Maybe some of you have, anyone? Earthquake? Yeah, experienced one? Everything around you is shaking. You feel uneasy. You feel off guard. Some of you maybe have been in a thunderstorm where the lightning was so much and the thunder was so loud and the rain coming down so much that you had to pull over. It can be unnerving as the wind blows and the trees maybe at your house, um, you wonder if they're going to fall over. You bring all that together and the Israelites are standing at the foot of this mountain and here's again what Moses said about them, everyone in the camp trembled. (laughs) These people had been filled with complaints. Now they're filled with something else. Fear. Mixed with awe. And I'm sure in there was respect. And as they stood at the foot of this mountain that was literally shaking with trumpets blaring from who knows where and lightning and thunder, they would have felt rightly. You would have felt rightly. Small. And weak. And powerless. And not so important. So here's the question that I wrestled with when I read this for the first time years ago. (laughs) 
Why? As God is establishing his covenant or reestablishing it with his people and about to give them the Ten Commandments, why Mount Sinai and the shaking and the power and the lightning and the trumpets? Why didn't God come that day like a heavenly father with his arms wide open for a bear hug? Why didn't he come as a shepherd with a staff in hand, ready to not only direct his sheep, but also to protect his sheep? Why the smoke and the shaking? Why the fear? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Understanding how big and powerful and holy and different than us God is, the creator to his creations, is the beginning of understanding our rightful relationship with God and who he is, and who we are. You see, to truly understand ourselves, to truly understand our relationship with God, guys, you know where you need to start? We need to start at the foot of Mount Sinai. Not just the Israelites so many years ago, but mentally and spiritually, we need to start right there. We need to take a moment. That's why this series is so important. To just be in awe of how big he is and of this reality that as big as we think we are, we are nothing compared to God. We are not as big as we think we are. We are not as important as we think we are. We're not as strong as sometimes we think we are. We need to stand for a moment and be in awe. Number two, fill in. We're talking about a God-fearing life today. If you want to live a God-fearing life, it's lived in awe of God's greatness. Uh, Many years ago, I had a chance to uh, stand up in a friend's wedding, and he was getting married in uh, Salt Lake City, Utah. And I had never been there before. Actually, now come to think of it, I've never been back either. But that's not because I didn't enjoy it. In fact, Salt Lake City, uh, after we landed and were driving towards downtown, is one of the, maybe the most beautiful city in America that I've ever been to. Here's a picture of the downtown area with the mountains just kind of around everything. And I remember being in a taxi, taking us to our hotel, Carrie and I, and I remember just like, looking all around at these mountains that you see on the screen and pointing, and my mouth was probably wide open. It just like, it was this experience to take in. I was in awe of Salt Lake City. And, And I remember looking at the taxi driver. He was not in awe. He was talking to someone on his, you know, on his radio. He was, he was listening to the radio. He was looking around and, you know, he was driving, so I'm glad he was looking you know, at the road and things. But what I, what I could tell was 
There was no awe for those mountains. Do you know why? Likely? Because he got used to them. They're there every day. They blend in to the surroundings. And my friends, those of you especially who've been Christians all your life, this is something that we need to guard our hearts about when it comes to God. But you don't have to be a Christian all your life for this to happen. Is we begin, or at least we're tempted, to get used to God. And we minimize sometimes, accidentally, the special nature of gathering here, of being in the word, being able to open your Bible and the powerful God speaks to you. We are tempted to minimize or to forget just how awesome it is that God is with us. We can forget how awesome and holy and powerful and big God is. He created everything. He's in charge of everything. And you know how sometimes we treat him? Especially maybe in our prayer lives like uh, some sort of uh, cosmic personal assistant. God, here's what you need to do. God, here's how I think things should go. God, here is what should be happening in my life. And I get some of that. We can bring all of our prayers and thoughts to God. But there's a different type of heart position that we need to be in, which is a recognition that we are small, that he is big, that we don't have it all figured out, that he does, that, that we just need to stand in awe of the fact that he even knows us or cares about us. You know, when God commands us to do something through his word, <clears throat> Are you ever like a three-year-old, at least mentally or you know, uh, you know, spiritually, asking the questions, why, 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 why? And you know what the truth is? God could say what parents sometimes say, which is, because I said so, and I'm God. Go back to Mount Sinai. You'll see. And yet in his love and in his care, every time I dig into those whys, for whatever he directs us for, I begin to find out it's not just because he says so, although that would be enough, but he knows how best life works. And he gives us his directions to be a blessing to us in every single area. Or maybe it's in the area of trust where we can so easily doubt. But when we recognize how big and great God is, when we stand in awe of his holiness and his perfection, trust grows. Obedience grows. It is good for us to be at Mount Sinai this morning. And when we are, we find this, that we are in awe of the greatness of our God. But you know what? If that's all there was, we'd be crushed. If all there was was God is holy and great and I am not, that would not be a good outcome. We would be crushed. Is there something else? And there absolutely is. 
In the New Testament, there is a letter called the letter or the book of Hebrews. This letter is super deep. It's like a sermon, and it connects the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's a great letter or book to read. And it's interesting, in one of the chapters, chapter 12, the writer to the Hebrews makes a connection between Exodus 19 that we just read and life as a Christian with Jesus. And after he talks about just the, the trembling mountain and the earthquakes and the trumpets, the writer does, he says this in verse 21, the sight was so terrifying, Exodus 19, we just read this, that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. And then he continues, but. But there's something else I want to tell you. While you're so afraid or fearful, but you have come not to Mount Sinai, but to Mount Zion, God's people. And, and what he describes in these next verses is a little bit of glimpse of heaven someday, but also we get to experience a little bit of glimpse of that right now as children of God to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You, my people, through Jesus, have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. So instead of fear, there is joy. Instead of worry, there is singing. Instead of a funeral, it's a celebration. To the church of the firstborn, that's his people, whose names are written in heaven, you have come to God, the judge of all. Stop. The judge of all. That holy God judges all people. And once again, that could cause us fear. But to the writer to the Hebrews, he figures it out. He explains it. Next verse. Next verse. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous, not who are perfect, but who have been made perfect. To, you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Not that we become part of God's family by what we do or who we're related to, but we're a part of God's family because of what Jesus has done and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a louder word than the blood of Abel. Fear that we have of God, and rightly so, this, this awe, this respect, this recognition, there's a gap between us. Jesus took away that gap, allowed us to have a relationship with the holy God, because not because we are perfect, but because he made us perfect through his death in our place and through his blood that washes us clean of our sins. It's interesting when you think to the death of Jesus, there's a couple interesting things that happened here. In Matthew 27, Matthew writes that at that moment when Jesus died, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This, this curtain that separated sinful people from a holy, the holy of holies has, was torn in two as a recognition that there is no sin now that separates us from God because we have been made Holy, we have been forgiven through Jesus. And then it continues, the earth 
shook. The rocks split and the tombs broke open. I, I never, until this week, recognized the symmetry of the earth shaking at Jesus' death and the earth shaking on Mount Sinai. What, what was that? Is it just a coincidence? Some Hollywood effects that God wanted people to, to, to see or to have? When Jesus died, this was Mount Sinai all over again, except a little bit different or maybe a lot bit different. That Jesus was shaken to win you a kingdom that never will be shaken. That the earth shook on the day that Jesus died, but it shook Jesus in our place so that we can have a kingdom that will never be shaken. And so, a God-feared life is one where we live in awe of God's greatness, but it's also one that is lived in awe of God's grace and love and mercy and compassion. And here's how the writer to the Hebrews ends it. Therefore, since we are receiving the gift of a heavenly kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and do what? Worship. Worship God acceptably with what? Reverence and with awe. Here's how you live a God-fearing life. You're in awe of God's greatness. You're in awe of God's grace. And then the one simple takeaway that is, well, covers all the things that we do. A God-fearing life is a life filled with worship. So what's worship? Worship is acknowledging that God is God and we are not. And it's living in a way that we give him the glory in all things and in all days and in everything that we do. That what is the purpose of your life? It's to get up and to worship, not just on Sunday morning, but on every single day. That a God-fearing life in response to God's greatness and his love is one that is centered on him every single day, living for him in everything. So we worship God in this place, but not just in this place. We worship that great Mount Sinai God on this day, but not just on this day. You worship God when you go to work, and you worship God when you go to school. You worship God in the world. And we worship God on the good days. But don't forget to worship him on the bad ones. We worship on the mountain. We worship him in the valley. We worship him with hands raised. And for Lutherans, sometimes we worship him with hands down. And heads down. We live a life of worship 
That's what a God-fearing life looks like. See, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And we have a God who has so much grace and who has so much love. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity um, to be reminded of how big and powerful you are. And I pray that our one response today is worship, is a focus of our lives or maybe a refocus on who you are, on your power and your strength, but on your grace and on your love and all those things made complete through the sprinkled blood of Jesus and the kingdom that he's given us that will last forever. Lord, be with us as we leave this place, as we leave this place of worship to go and to worship. We pray it in Jesus' name.